I saw some of you get your cell phones out and hold them up, hoping it was dark in here. Let me, let me put that in uh, an analogy you can understand if you're a little bit older. Cigarette lighters, they don't do those anymore at concerts. Now it's cell phones. Anyway, just trying to, trying to be missional and relate to you and help you understand the context of things. Bad attempts at humor today. I don't know. I just need to kind of give it up, I guess. A very well-respected Christian, devout Christian, believed the Bible from beginning to end, would have said that he loved God's Word and loved Jesus Christ, once said that Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20 is, and I quote, one of the most terrible sections in all the Bible. Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, one of the most terrible sections in all the Bible. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans 1.18. And you say, with that as the introduction, the most terrible section in all the Bible, and the pastor says, open your Bible to that section? Why on earth are we going to look at the most terrible section in all of the Bible? Not only that, why are we going to begin looking at the most terrible section in all the Bible? Because i got to tell you, we're going to be looking at this most terrible section for a number of weeks. Why on earth would we do that? Well, the answer to that question is, because, like no other text ever written, like no other text ever written, like nothing else in the Bible, like nothing else outside of the Bible... Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20 helps us to understand just how good the good news of the gospel is. Romans 1.18, like nothing else that has ever been written, Romans 1.18 and following, helps us to understand just how gospel-esque, if you will, the gospel is. And so for that reason, I can't wait to look at the most terrible section in all the Bible, the most awful section in all the Bible, because it's going to help us to understand the cross of Christ. It's going to help us understand the gospel like nothing else would help us to grasp and understand and appreciate and worship the author of the gospel, Jesus Christ. I want to show you in the context why it's necessary for us to see this awful section. I want to show you, according to the verses that come before the section and according to the verses that come after the section, so that you might appreciate what's really being presented here. And so look with me, if you would. We saw Romans 1.18 earlier because it talked about the wrath of God, and it talks about the wrath of God for several chapters. But if you would look just before that, in verses 16 and 17, you'll see just how this plays out. Verses 16 and 17 are very positive. We looked at them last time. For It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's very positive that we can be saved if we believe in Christ. For, verse 17 says, In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as we saw last time, from faith to beginning to end. It's, we receive the righteousness of God by faith and only by faith. 
Then he goes on to say, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Or if you look in your margin, a better translation, he who is righteous by faith shall live. The emphasis there being, we can have righteousness. We can have the righteousness that only God can provide. And it comes to us through faith. It comes to us through faith in the gospel. It comes to us through faith in Christ. And this is the good news. This is fantastic news. We love this news. This is, this is the gospel. But it comes on that side of that terrible section. Now let's look at the other side of the terrible section. If you just turn over a couple of pages and you go to Romans 3.21 after this section about sin and about wrath and about judgment, on the other side of it, we see something almost exactly like Romans 1.16 and 17. And it's on purpose. He picks up the same theme in 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which is what we just heard about in 1.16 and 17, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Both of those texts talk about how great the gospel is, how great it is that we as sinners can have God's righteousness, which comes to us through faith, in the finished righteous work of Christ. Both of those texts emphasize the gospel. Both of those texts we find as Christians glorious and marvelous and wonderful. They really provide the, provide the foundation for everything. And sandwiched in the middle is this most terrible text. I counted 64 verses. 64, if you will, terrible verses of systematic, comprehensive analysis on the sinfulness of sin, on the sinfulness of our hearts, on the sinfulness of the human heart. It's this huge section that is weighty. It's a big downer about how sinful everyone is. Why is it there? No doubt it's there for us to truly, genuinely see just how good the good news is. To see just how great Jesus Christ is and to see just how badly we need His righteousness. Because if we're generally good people, faults here and there, mess up sometimes, but hey, nobody's perfect. The gospel isn't really that impressive. It's really okay news that really just makes us feel good about how good we are. And nothing could be further from the truth from God's perspective. The Apostle Paul is writing this under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit and he knows that his original audience and he knows that people like you and people like me will not get it. We won't get the gospel. The, the, the gospel will be some kind of religious message about I don't know what, but we won't get the gospel. We won't get the cross. We won't get any of it really unless we have a proper evaluation of the sinfulness of sin. And Romans 1.18 to 
through 3.20 gives it to us in a truckload. And so we will look at it and we will look at it with intensity. We will look at it because it's much needed for us. Because if we're really going to glorify Christ the way Christ deserves to be glorified, if we're really going to understand the gospel the way it needs to be understood, we will understand just how sinful we are. And God will get glory the way He should get glory as a result of that. Before we go any further and before I give you an outline for this morning, let let me remind you how Romans 1, 2, and 3 unfold. This is not for today. This is for the days ahead. But just so you're aware, what happens is after this introduction, the first 17 verses, he talks about the good news. Then what he does is he gives us this, this heavy emphasis and analysis and unfolding about sin. Well, first what he does is he deals in chapter 1, 18 to the end of the chapter with humanity in general, primarily with Gentiles. And he shows how Gentiles are under the wrath of God. That would be most of us, Gentiles. Then he moves on in chapters 2 and 3 and he deals with two other kinds of people. You could say it's one kind of person, but let's divide them into two kinds of people. He deals with the person who says, well, yeah, I understand that that general pagans, they're under the wrath of God, like in chapter 1, but that's not me because generally speaking, I'm a good person. And I show my goodness because I, you know, I try to help the needy and I try to help people out when they need help, so on and so forth. I'm, I'm a moralist, you know, I do philanthropic acts. And he's going to show that they too are under the wrath of God. Then the person is going to say, wait a minute, I understand how general, generally people are under the wrath of God, but you know, uh, I'm not just a moralist, I am religious. You know, I keep Sabbath. Uh, I go to the, I go to the, the, the tabernacle. I, I, I go to church. I, I go to the temple. I, I do all these things. I pray at the right time of day facing the right direction. I do all of these things I'm supposed to do. And he makes the point loud and clear at the end of Romans 3. It doesn't matter who you are. You're under the wrath of God because you're a sinner. And where there is sin, the just consequence according to the God of the universe is there's death. Physical and spiritual death. Primarily spiritual would be the emphasis here. So just so you know where we're headed, where we're headed is we're headed down the road that points that paints everyone into a dark corner. But it does so so that we can appreciate the greatness of Christ. And I want to go on record as saying if we don't understand how dark the corner is, it's impossible for us to understand the gospel. The gospel is something other than the gospel if we don't understand it with the sinfulness of sin in view. So we'll work hard at doing that. This morning we will look at this first section. We'll begin to look at the first section dealing with humanity in general, which is Romans 1, 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18 to 32. And there are three, let's call them universals. Three universals regarding the wrath of God that help us to appreciate the gospel. In Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter... 32, I believe, there are three universals regarding the wrath of God that help us to see just how good the good news is, that help us to even see that the good news really is good news. Three universals regarding the wrath of God. And you say, three points today and they all have to do with the wrath of God? 
That's a pretty heavy message, Pastor. Oh, wait, you don't know how heavy. We're only going to get the first one done today. (laughs) Okay, so three universals about the wrath of God. And we'll do the first one today. And we'll do the next one next time, perhaps the next one as well. And then we're just done with chapter (laughs) 1. We're just dealing with humanity in general. Then we're moving on to the moralist, and then we're moving on to the religionist. And so it's going to be very, very heavy. I was reminded this past week, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably my favorite preacher, at least my favorite preacher that I've ever heard because we have audio recordings. And listening to Lloyd-Jones and uh, listening to him preach, and he said, you know, um, the best compliment I ever received in all of my ministry, Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor, uh, became a preacher, just a great preacher, a great thinker, Christian thinker. The best compliment I ever received was from a lady who left the church and she told someone else she left because that Lloyd-Jones preaches to us as if we're sinners. (laughs) And I thought, that is a good compliment. I love that. Well, guess what? I'm going to preach to you as if you're a sinner. Because you are. (laughs) And that's how we should preach. Because indeed, as we'll even see today and next week and the next week and for who knows how many weeks, we are under the wrath of God. We are sinners. And if we don't get that, the gospel will never really be the gospel and Christ will will never be exalted the way He's supposed to be exalted. We've got to come to grips with the problem or we'll never appreciate the solution. And so I can't wait to talk about the sinfulness of sin. Here are the three universals. We'll only get the first one. The first one... God's wrath is universally revealed. God's wrath is universally revealed. That's in chapter 1, verse 18. The second universal regarding the wrath of God that helps us to see the gospel as truly good news. Number two, God's wrath is universally deserved. Universally deserved. That's in verses 19 to 23. And the third and final, which we'll get to by Christmas, God's wrath is universally inflicted. It is universally inflicted. So number one, universally revealed, verse 18. Number two, universally deserved, verses 19 to 23. And number three, God's wrath is universally inflicted, verses 24 to 32. And I will try my best to continue to step back and remind you of the big picture so we don't get you know, lost staring at the tree so we don't understand the bigness of the forest or the magnitude of the forest. Let's go ahead and look at this first universal regarding the wrath of God that helps us to appreciate the gospel. It's universally revealed. Look with me at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's pretty straightforward. It's pretty clear. I said it's universal because it says against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it says right there that it's revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. Now this is significant and important that we see that it is universally revealed and it becomes significant for us. And the writer of Romans wants us to see it that way because even look at the verse that comes before. In verse 17, which we've already looked at, says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And there, he's no doubt talking about the righteousness of God that we can have because it comes to us by faith. 
Well, so he's talking about the good news, the gospel news, the righteousness of God is revealed that we can have through faith. But for us to appreciate that, he says, using the same verbiage in 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So see the contrast. He's doing it on purpose. Understand how great it is to have the righteousness of God through faith. But then you need to understand why it's so great. It's because God's wrath is universally revealed Also, you need the righteousness because otherwise you're under the wrath. And by the way, in passing, if you have a Bible translation that doesn't start in verse 18 with the word for, take the Bible that you have and use it for late night reading, but buy a different Bible for your study Bible. Because the word for is there. Write it in the margin. But over and over again, certain translations take these words out, especially in the book of Romans. Not a good study Bible because you won't appreciate what's happening by way of logic. He wants you to see verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. And it's positive in verse 17. But the reason it's positive is because of verse 18. "For For the wrath of God is revealed. So I'm not trying to make fun of your Bible or beat up on your translation or anything like that. It's there in the Greek New Testament. Therefore, it's there. So add it in the margin. But it'd be a good idea to get a different study Bible so that you can see, get a New American Standard or a King James or a New King James or an ESV or something where they're going to leave those words in and you'll have a more trustworthy Bible to study anyway. What makes it such good news is the bad news that comes before. The bad news. Godet, the classic commentator on Romans, summarizes it this way. There is a wonderful revelation of righteousness by the gospel. 16 and 17. Because there is a revelation of wrath on the whole world. Verse 18 and following. Once again, I've said it already. I'm going to say it again and say it some more. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross work of Christ The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ is so marvelous and wonderful because it is, in fact, against the backdrop of you being under the wrath of God apart from it. This is why Christians actually like to listen to sermons about the wrath of God. This is why Christians actually like to learn about the sinfulness of sin because as we grow in our understanding of that, we grow in our appreciation of Christ. It's great. So when we have a class on homardiology, technical word for the study of sin, a bunch of people sign up for it. You say, that's crazy. They're just going in there to ruin their self-esteem. Well, that's true because if you ruin your self-esteem, you're actually getting warmer to understanding Christianity. You're actually getting closer to understanding just how great Christ is and just why you needed Him to die for you. Remember, Romans will go on to say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. With all of that said, I think you have a pretty good understanding of verse 18. If you've been tracking with me, You understand 16 and 17, 18 and following. You understand this idea of this universal wrath of God and why we need to understand that to understand the gospel. And on one level, I could say, okay, let's be done. 
But on another level, we need to talk, I think, a little bit more about the details, a little bit more about the wrath of God. So instead of moving on to point number two, so instead of saying, all right, let's close in prayer, instead of doing that, let's, let's, let's do that. Let's talk a little bit about, more about the wrath of God. Let's meditate a little bit about this. Let's ponder the wrath of God even more fully so that we truly can appreciate the cross and the gospel in a more profound way. Starting with the reality of divine wrath. Let's talk about that a little bit. After all, we're a culture that's been discipled by the likes of Oprah and Robert Schuller and people like them. And so hearing the words wrath and God in the same sentence is not something that we have a category for. I don't have a box for that if I've been mentored and trained by Oprah or and or Robert Schuller or people like them. If your mentor right now is Joel Osteen, you don't have a box for this. And by the way, one writer, at least one writer, refers to Oprah as America's theologian. More people learn more theology from Oprah than anyone else. We don't have a box. Wrath and God? What? You've got to be kidding me. Seriously? Wrath and God? Uh, Well, it's right there. And ignorance doesn't make it any less real. Right there, look, in verse 18. In the New Testament, in plain sight, to hear loud and clear, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So notice there's two emphases. It's, It's the wrath of God. And in case we're a little bit hard of hearing or seeing, it says, from heaven. It it comes from God. In the classic book, Knowing God, the author makes this observation. One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. It's true. Hundreds of times, working our way from Old Testament through the New Testament, it's wrath all over the place. It is indeed an attribute of God. Listen to Psalm 7.11. In Psalm 7.11 it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation. The Greek version, wrath. Every day. God is a righteous judge. And this God, every day has wrath. It is characteristic of Him. It is true of Him. God is a God of wrath. There's no way around it unless, again, you're saying, well, uh, I'm going to create this myself. And, 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 but, but, but to me, God is... How many times have you heard that? I've heard that so many times. wish I had a dollar for every time I'd be a multi-bazillionaire. You're trying to talk to somebody, talking to them about who God is and what the Bible says about God. And, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? To me... God is, well, that reveals a lot about you. (laughs) But it doesn't tell me much about God. To me, God is. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but just just so you're aware, if if you're one of those people, Romans 1 actually talks about you. So you might be excited at first and think, really? You know, that's like being excited because your name's in the program. You know, you're, you're involved in some kind of uh, drama or musical or something like that. And, and what do we all do when nobody's watching? Where's my name? Oh, A-B-E, I'm first. You know? <laughs> well, if you're one of those people who says, but, but to me, God is, 
You might be encouraged at first because you're in the program. You're in Romans 1. But it's not in the role that you want. You, you really don't want to be in the program. We don't want to say, to me, God is, and we'll see why in just a little while. What we want to do is see that God is a God of wrath. Otherwise, the gospel doesn't make any sense. That's what we're seeing here. I never want to forget that God is a God of wrath because if I forget that, somehow the cross will not really be meaningful. It won't make sense in a Christian sense. It will be convoluted. It will be nonsensical eventually when you push it to its logical extreme. Let's talk more about that as we progress. Let's move on to another angle, another thing to ponder about the wrath of God, and that's the present reality of divine wrath. Look at verse 18 again, and you'll see that it's a present reality where it says, for the wrath of God is revealed. It's a present tense in the Greek New Testament, so it's more literal, is being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed? It's something that is right here and right now? The wrath of God? And you say, I thought the wrath of God was something that comes in the future. And you're right, it does come in the future. It's true it comes in the future. Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 talks about Jesus returning, His second coming, and bringing the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 talks about Jesus rescuing us from the wrath to come. That's what theologians call the eschatological wrath, eschatos, the end. It's true, there is a coming wrath of God. But sometimes we overlook Romans 1, there is a current, present wrath of God, and it is being revealed. It's a present reality now. And as we will see in the days ahead, this present wrath of God that is presently being revealed in the here and now is the wrath of God where God withdraws. Some have called this the wrath of abandonment. It's where God takes His hands away, if you will, and lets people go. You want to reject me? You want to live your sinful life? Then go. Someone has referred to this as built-in wrath. As in when God orchestrated everything and when He put everything together in this universe, there was a built-in mechanism where when He was rejected, there would be logical consequences and it would lead to further misery and further destruction. And we'll talk about this in the days ahead, but for now, let's see that it does say this is a present reality. This is wrath in the here and now. And as we get into this more deeply in the days ahead, you're going to say, I see it. Even when I did Scripture reading earlier, you may have been listening to that thinking, that's a first century document? (laughs) This this sounds like it was just written. It sounds like he's talking about us. And you know what? is. The wrath of God is presently being revealed. In my short little life of 39 years, I have seen the unfolding, the revelation of the wrath of God in my life. There are evidences in Omaha, Nebraska. There are evidences in the United States of America. There are evidences in the world that we are living in that the wrath of God is being revealed. Without question. Just read all of Romans 1. It's a present reality. 
this divine wrath is. Something else to ponder are the objects of God's wrath. Look at verse 18 again, if you would. I should just say, look at the verse, because that's the only verse we're in. But there in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So we have the objects of wrath, we have the ungodly, and we have the unrighteous. And at first we might think, well, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. That doesn't include everybody. Well, if we go on to the end of Romans 3, when it says in verse 9, all are under sin, oh, then we go back to 118 and we realize he's not leaving wiggle room. He's making it clear that there's not just even no wiggle room, there's no breathing room. The objects of wrath? Sinners. Ungodly people. All are under sin. And here's where, if you're creative, just not thinking biblically, you're reaching for anything and everything you can reach at, reach for. You're thinking, you know what? Yeah, I see it. I watch the news. I agree with the pastor. But you know what? My objection is, I'm trying to do the right thing, and so I know I'm not under the wrath of God. Well, we're going to get to that. That's in chapter 2. Yeah, well, wait a minute. I, I agree so far too. Yeah, but, but you know what? I go to church. And I wrote a check the other day. I mean, I've been reading my Bible. Those are good things. But by the end of Romans 3, the Bible makes it clear, the Bible you're reading, that you too are under the wrath of God. So be careful about your objections to this being universal. You too are under the wrath of God. Romans 2 and 3, if you have those objections, await you. That sounds kind of sinister, doesn't it? Romans 2 and 3 await you. Those of you who think you'll escape the wrath of God. I don't mean for it to sound sinister, but it's how it is. You know, it's as if, you know, you watch a movie and you're watching the movie and the bad guy thinks he's got him. But you know, and the good guy knows, that beyond those doors are more good guys. And so when the bad guy backs out the doors, he gets clobbered on the head. Well, if you think you can escape the wrath of God, because you're looking down your nose at our current culture and you say, yes, we indeed are under the wrath of God, but at least I'm relatively moral and I try to help people in need, or at least I'm religious and so I know I'm not under the wrath of God, you need to know that beyond those doors, there's a guy with a club. And you're going to get clubbed on the head too. But you know what? That's what we want. Because religion doesn't save. And morality doesn't save. Only the perfect righteousness of Christ saves. Because that's what God has been demanding and requiring all along. And so it's good for us to know. It's good for us to hear this. It's not sinister in any way, shape, or form. Better to know now. Well, another perspective to look at from is that of the reason for the wrath. Look with me again at verse 18. He gives the explanation. What, why the wrath? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's sin. Unrighteousness. That's sin. 
The wrath comes because we've rebelled against God. It's, it's something that we deserve. It's ungodliness. It's unrighteousness. But even behind the sinful acting, there's something even that is, is more core to the issue. Keep reading in verse 18. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There, there, there's the core issue. You want to know why the wrath of God is being revealed? You want to know why uh, we are under the wrath of God? Well, yes, it's because we're sinning. But you know what's even behind that? There's the answer. Because of the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. And by the way, you might want to just keep your finger or take your pen in verse 18 where it says the truth. And connected to verse 25, where he's talking about the same thing, and he further explains himself, the truth of God. That's the issue. What's what's happening here? Why the wrath? Why the sinful acting even? What's going on? You know what's going on? He says right there in verse 18, because of the suppression of the truth. What, What truth? What truth are we talking about? My truth versus your truth? No, it's the truth of God, the objective truth of God, the objective revelation of God Himself. Think about this. Here's what happens, and this fits the rest of Romans 1. God is gracious and kind enough to show Himself to us. God is gracious and kind to reveal Himself to you and to everyone. The truth about God is evident. And what do we do? It says right there in Romans 1.18, we suppress the truth. The vivid image is we actively push the truth down. There's something in you that says there is a God and there is a God who is a God of wrath. But you hold it down and you say, but to me, God is. There's something in everyone. That's where our, our, the argument of Romans 1 that says all that this stuff, all this true stuff about God, and what do we do? Because of sin, we hold it down. We don't want to come to grips with that. God has been nice to reveal Himself. He's been gracious. And we're busy doing this. The word for that is idolatry. We take the truth of God and we say, nope, to me God is not wrathful. That's idolatry. And you want to know what perturbs God beyond anything else? Start in Genesis, read to Revelation. Idolatry. Even if it's not called that. When you say, the one true God is not God, something else is God. Or when you say, the one true God is not like He's revealed Himself, the truth about God, He's actually a different way. This is who God is to me. And then it gets heated. Why the wrath? Well, because of sin. Well, it's even deeper than that. It's the sin of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. See, we're even seeing that sinful living is connected to sinful believing. Sinful living is connected to bad theology. God made Himself known. And we say, no, He's not like that. This is what He's like. And thus the wrath comes. And the wrath comes against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, the truth about God, in unrighteousness. Idolatry is nothing more, nothing less than, to me God is, 
Our biggest problem? is our heart. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Well, John Calvin is not my authority, but you know what? He was right about that. Here we have a text that's saying this is a universal problem. That human beings are in the mode of constantly suppressing the truth about God and unrighteousness. Yeah, you know another way to say that? The human heart is an idol factory. We just keep saying, yeah, I know, but to me God is. And God is wrathful in response. He is wrathful in response. And that leads to the other stuff of Romans 1. Heavy message, downer of a message, bad news. Why is it in here? Well, it's in here so we can see that the righteousness of God in Christ is great. If you are an idolater, and I am an idolater, and we always have our own little spin on God, and that's God's evaluation, and yet, amidst that, I'm busy telling and thinking lies about God, and and He has His Son come anyway, and live for me anyway, and die for me, and experience God's just wrath on the cross for me anyway, and then rise again from the dead for me anyway... How great thou art! (laughs) Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. But it comes back to us agreeing with God about who we are. We are unrighteous. We are ungodly. We do suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that's why when God has His Son die for us anyway, we will give our lives loving Him. Praising Him, exalting Him, worshiping Him, telling others about how great He is. And you say, you mean you need to know all that to understand the Gospel? On one level, yes! This is such a good diversion. It's so appropriate that He doesn't move from 117 to 321. We gotta to come to grips with the reality of all this. Next time we're going to look at God's wrath being universally deserved, and then God's wrath being universally inflicted. And my greatest desire, my greatest intent is this very thing that we're doing here is not so that we can all feel bad as an end in and of itself, but so that we can all feel bad so that we can see how good Christ is, so we can all feel good about how great He is and worship Him with our lives. It is no doubt the key to everything. And I can't wait to talk about wrath and judgment and sin, mine and yours, next time because it's the key to our worship. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for being honest with us and telling us the truth and making these things even clear to understand as a result of the illuminating work of Your Spirit, as a result of Your Word and its clarity. And now, Father, we are thankful for this opportunity we have this morning to respond in a unique and special way by doing what You told us to do, and that is to 
remember the significance of you giving your life as a ransom for us. Lord, as we take simple bread and as we take simple wine and we celebrate what you've done for us and one of the ways you have told us to celebrate that very great work, may it be a rich response, may it be a great response as we celebrate communion now, the end of this service. May we have it riveted in our minds that we were under your wrath, under your just wrath, And you had your son step in and experience the wrath for us so that we might have his righteousness, so that we might know eternal life, so that we might know you, so that we might know forgiveness, so that we might even be made your ambassadors with the highest calling known to mankind. May this be a great time for us, God, as we express our thanksgiving to you by submitting to you in this act of worship through communion. In Christ's name I pray, amen.